Kia ora I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to this week's Insight. Imagine living in a New Zealand that attracted more than 28 million tourists a year, then picture them all only heading to the South Island. That nightmare scenario is the reality for another of the world's tourist hotspots, Iceland. Around 2.2 million tourists headed to Iceland last year, that's seven times the size of the population. While this country has invested billions of dollars over decades in tourist infrastructure, we're still struggling with the growing visitor numbers. There were 3.7 million in the year to October 2017. Over the years, Iceland's governments haven't spent nearly as much on crucial infrastructure, such as accommodation and public toilets, and now the nation's paying the price. Lynn Freeman travelled to Iceland to ask if both nations can learn valuable lessons from each other and if Iceland could oust New Zealand over its claims to be clean and green. Iceland is well known for its magical and diverse nature. Whether it's the moon-like landscape, natural lagoons or the volcanic rocks and mountains, Iceland is a holiday destination of extremes. Listening to that promotional video, you could easily think it's for Aotearoa New Zealand, but it is in fact part of Iceland's aggressive marketing campaign. Iceland is home to around 330,000 people and is about a third of the land size of New Zealand. In 2010, there were just half a million visitors. Last year, 2.2 million tourists headed to Iceland, and I was one of them. I found a beautiful, friendly country but one clearly unprepared for the tourist onslaught. And I wondered, can it learn from New Zealand's own tourist growth spurt? Reykjavik, the capital city of Iceland, is a 40-minute drive from the airport. The city was founded by Ingolfur Arnason in the year of 870. You can drive around Iceland on the 1,333-kilometre-long ring road. That's exactly what Peter, a New Zealander who visited Iceland for the first time in 2017, did. I chose Iceland because I hadn't heard of any of my friends going to Iceland. So I figured I'd go to... I'd go to it someplace out of the way, someplace different, but I hadn't heard any experiences from. It's just out of this world. The kind of views you can get are amazing, the icebergs, the rock formations, the huge fjordlands, the black sand. There's so many things to see. The heavy investment in tourism marketing campaigns by Iceland's previous governments and the private sector is well and truly paying off. But it's a case of be careful what you wish for, because well over two million tourists a year are placing a huge strain on Iceland's resources, environment, infrastructure and residents. The rapid growth shows no sign of abating, despite the fiendishly strong Icelandic krona. Many tour companies are cashing in on the tourist explosion. I met one of the busy tour guides while looking around Iceland's volcanic south coast. Uh, My name is Ivar Mar Augustsson. What do you think turned the world's attention to Iceland as a tourist destination? I think the eruption back in 2010 really hyped up the conversation about Iceland because everybody just learned about that volcano. And even for us as well, people, Icelandic people started to get more active in learning about their country because we have our famous volcanoes like Hakla and Katla and like ones that are really big and really famous. 
I had never heard about Eyjafjalla Jökull until it erupted. So I think a lot of Icelandic people also got quite interested in learning about their country. And I think it's just the same went for the rest of the world. Like everybody was intrigued what was going on in this little rock in the middle of nowhere. This entrepreneurial young Icelandic history graduate takes walking tours in Reykjavik, where he talks about the origins of Iceland's tourist boom. Uh, my name is Eirikur Viljar Hallgrimsson Kult. We've been wanting people to come here for quite a long time, but the problem was a couple of reasons. There was uh, not many flights coming in here, Iceland was very expensive, and just people, they, they hadn't discovered Iceland. But it wasn't until, you know, the global financial crisis in uh, the end of 2008 and beginning of 2009 that the currency completely fell. So Iceland became like a, an affordable destination. And obviously with this huge crisis here in Iceland, the financial crisis, unemployment rates skyrocketed and it was a bit of a problem here. So people basically left the banking industry or the finance and started to focus their, you know, ambition somewhere else and that's when tourism basically became like okay this is maybe something we could focus on Iceland is affordable now the currency is weak and the airline companies here they started to promote like free stopovers so if you're flying from North America to Europe or vice versa you can stop in Iceland for one to seven days without additional charge so you can get like two destinations in for the price of one so a lot of people were coming here as a part of a stopover. Gabe from Canada did just that the plane ticket I bought was the cheapest one, and it had a 19-hour layover, so I decided to just, instead of wasting my time, to do something out of it. Right now I'm on a bus tour on the Golden Circle, and after I'll just visit the main touristy attractions in the town and then head back to the airport and go to Helsinki. I always wanted to go here. My friends went, my family went. They all liked it, so yeah. It was very nice, but very expensive. But the layovers have proved so popular, the island nation is simply drowning in visitors. <laughs> One of the biggest attractions is Iceland's famous man-made geothermal spa, the Blue Lagoon, about 40 kilometres from the capital of Reykjavik. The waters are mineral rich and around 39 degrees Celsius. But locals told me the Blue Lagoon is overrated, overpriced and dirty. They're much prouder of their small local hot pools in Reykjavik. But residents are now getting frustrated with visitors who don't shower before going for a dip in them, to the point where videos have been made to educate tourists about hot pool etiquette. We take hygiene very seriously. And everyone is required to take a shower before entering the pool area. So, remember the little rhyme? Heads, armpits, crotch and toes. Crotch and toes. Heads, armpits, crotch and toes. Simon Milne, who's Professor of Tourism at AUT and Director of the New Zealand Tourism Research Institute, says these kinds of initiatives are lessons New Zealand can learn from to avoid cultural clashes over here. Certainly I've spoken to a number of Icelanders over the years who have, have indicated to me that this is where they find the brush up against tourism to be the most challenging when it comes to visitors not being aware of, of how to behave, not being aware of the challenges that uh, can stem from 
bringing your own approaches to life, your own norms to a new cultural setting. And and so in effect, I think what Iceland has done is moved a lot further than we have in preparing the visitor before they arrive for what they might experience and trying to find ways to reduce some of the tensions that can emerge between visitor and local. Just as in New Zealand, Iceland is facing rising housing costs and much of the blame is being laid at the feet of tourists. Because of a desperate shortage of accommodation, especially over the summer months, locals are cashing in by offering their homes to visitors through Airbnb and other outlets. Reykjavik has now curbed the number of residents offering properties to rent after complaints from residents they're being squeezed out of the housing market, the same issue being faced in areas like Queenstown. Christensen, a tourist guide in the northern city of Akureyri, outlines other frustrations and resentments that are building up. I was actually living in Reykjavik in 2012, and I remember when you could go to the Laugavör, you know, the main shopping street, and uh, you heard Icelandic, you didn't hear any English. Then kind of just out of nowhere, it just started to increase, 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 and today you don't hear Icelandic on our main shopping street. What's your sense of how the good people of Iceland are feeling about this influx of tourists? I would say that the resentment is getting more and more, actually. I mean, you want to go downtown in your town, and I mean, just... Enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. but it's still very crowded. In Iceland, we're not used to big crowds. People see all these tourists, and they know that they're spending money, but they're not seeing this money being taxed by the government to do you know, great things for our healthcare system, for our road system, for every the, the infrastructure that really... was under pressure now, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 definitely. That needs, desperately needs to be, you know, updated everything here. Simon Milne, the tourism professor from AUT, says the two nations are both at a tourism crossroads. I would say we're actually at very similar stages. Um, I think New Zealand has been caught out a little bit by the rapid growth of visitor numbers in recent years. It's been caught out by the rapid growth in some new markets as well, like China. Um, I think we are certainly playing catch-up when it comes to infrastructure development, uh, working out how to fund the sustainable development and growth of this industry over time. And I would argue that Iceland's at a a very similar stage. Obviously, they have different challenges. Um, They've got different policies, different frameworks that they have to work within. But I actually think there are some some very close parallels. And uh, I would argue that we, we have the opportunity to learn a lot from each other. The Icelandic tour guide, Ivar Morogustin, believes Iceland can cope with a tourist onslaught, but only if it's prepared to make changes. I mean, there are a lot of countries that have a lot less people living there, and they take in probably similar amounts of, as we do. I think we just have to learn how to distribute those people, because we are pretty much routing everybody to the same spots every time. But there's so much more to see. We're just focusing on, like, two or three big day trips. So, I mean, I think if we do it the right way, we should be able to take in all these people easily. Where then, knowing the country as well as you do, where would you direct, say, New Zealanders to? Maybe they know the Golden Circle, and I'm loving this, the South yeah. Coast here. It's absolutely beautiful. But where are some better-kept secrets that you could, you don't mind sharing? I mean, some of the most beautiful places that I've ever seen are, for example, on the north coast of Iceland, where we have a waterfall called Dattifoss, which is absolutely amazing. And they have another national park there called Ausbirgi, which is 
like it's like taken from Jurassic Park. It's just insane. And the East Fjords and the West Fjords, it's just wherever you go. Like if you drive around the country, like every other turn that you're gonna make is gonna be the new most beautiful place you've ever seen. Several large new retail and accommodation buildings have appeared in the centre of Reykjavik, though it's not thought to be nearly enough. Stephen England Hall, the chief executive of Tourism New Zealand, says tourist accommodation is a huge challenge for any economy. In New Zealand we're very fortunate we have a very open economy and a very open market, so I'm a big believer that market forces will will manage will meet supply and demand. If you like, we will end up with sufficient accommodation over time to deal with our with the increasing demand. Uh, but if, obviously, from a central government point of view or any investment point of view, trying to pick exactly where you should put them <laughs> or how many you should build is obviously always going to be a, a, a risky endeavour. You know, if you look at the long term forecast for tourism, I mean, even taking New Zealand as an example. Currently, it's forecast that f- nearly 50% of New Zealand's uh, export earning growth is going to come from the growth in tourism over the next five years. And you put that in math terms, it's a $5 billion increase to our economy. And you can kind of do some simple math and go, you know, 20% of that's probably going to go into transportation and connectivity and airfares. Maybe another 20 to 25% will go into uh, accommodation and, and the balance will go into, you know, food, beverage and activity consumption. And so you can kind of go, well, there's probably a billion dollar market opportunity in accommodation over the next five years um, if our trend continues. And so that that gives people, I think, a bit of a guidance as to the scale of the opportunity. Eric Good, the Icelandic entrepreneur, believes his country's been caught short. Up to a certain point, we were ready, but I know we were not ready with this huge amount because we didn't know how many would come here. And, of course, with the popularity of Iceland, the tourism growing so fast, you could say the infrastructure wasn't growing as fast with it. It's in the news here basically every day, you know, this increased tourism and how do we deal with it. And has it overtaken fishing now? It has overtaken fishing as the main industry. So Iceland is basically, according to statistics, in fifth place when it comes to how much the countries rely on tourism. So you can, so you can definitely say it's becoming the, one of the biggest industries here. And there's no denying that. I'm convinced that tourism will, you know, survive as a, how can I say it, a sustainable uh, industry, not just like a bubble that will explode, because that would be quite devastating for the economy now, because they are relying so much on tourism. Of course we're going to try and go whale watching. Um, I can't guarantee anything, I'm afraid. The whales are here just doing their own thing, thankfully, and if we do see something, it's really special, because we're visiting these animals in their own Both Iceland and New Zealand um, offer whale watching experiences. One of the points of difference is that whale meat is a traditional food in Iceland, so many tourists go there both to see the whales and to taste them. And that's fueling demand for whale meat, despite the fact many young Icelanders aren't interested in eating it. So we should all be scanning the horizon the whole time, and what we're looking for is a spout. But one place you won't find whale on the menu in Iceland is the main whale-watching centre of Husavik, up in the north, where over 100,000 tourists head to each year. Uh, my name is Artgrimur Arnarsson. I'm called Aki, and I'm the marketing manager for Norselink in Husavik. 
We are the pioneers in whale watching, and uh, we started in uh, like regular tours in 1995. We have 10 boats for whale watching. Our uh, competitors that uh, we have already now four companies doing whale watching in Husavik. There can be like 20 boats out in the very, very high season, all in all. But uh, hence that it's going to be going from very early morning to very late evening. Yeah, we, we are trying to, to not uh, have too much boats in one place at the same time, and we are always very careful about the whales. Arki says they often field questions about present-day whaling. They are mainly uh, concerned, of course, about the whaling and the hunting. But uh, we are, of course, uh, strictly against whaling. We are uh, hoping that it will stop one day. And, and there's always a, a very good dialogue with, uh, with the guests about all these things. I mean, they are environmentally conscious and they are interested in the same way as we are about uh, yeah, being responsible around the whales. And uh, we, I mean, our restaurants are whale meat-free, puffin meat-free as well. But yeah, it's, it's, there's obviously some demand, and I mean, it's being served in the restaurants. People have different opinions, of course, about it. The ridiculously cute seabirds, puffins and their eggs are another important traditional food source in Iceland. And again, opinion is divided about whether puffin meat and eggs should be on restaurant menus these days, especially given puffin numbers are declining alarmingly through harvesting, but more critically because of climate change. I visited an Icelandic puffin expert and advocate, Dr Urpersner Hansen, at the South Iceland Nature Centre on the southern Westman Islands. Well, Iceland is, is the largest uh, of the five sort of main concentrations or populations, subpopulations, if you like. For example, in this archipelago, we're in the Westmans, uh, we have about 830,000 pairs, which is uh, almost double the whole uh, British Isles in, in total. There have been declines here now since 2003, reflected in... Um, and uh, very low uh, production of um, chicks, uh, hardly any in some years, and low in others. Uh, but this goes for all south and west coast, and that's about 65% of the Icelandic population, which totals around around two to two and a half million pairs, breeding pairs. And uh, they've been going down in these last 14 years by 22%. Another of the puffin viewing hotspots in Iceland is in the far north, in Arctic Territory, on Grimsey Island. It takes a couple of hours each way on an old ferry. Because it's a bit off the beaten track, it's not enjoying the tourist bonanza the rest of Iceland is experiencing, as I found out from local tourist guide Hartler Ingolstrottir. I say there's a three main attractions about this island. The nature, the bird life, and there's a lot of photographer and uh, bird watcher the Arctic Circle that crosses the island, and it's the only place in Iceland where you can cross it on land. But, but third, and not the least uh, attraction of the island, is the local people who live here. And I keep telling everyone, both the uh, media and uh, everyone who asks, I say, Grimsey without the locals is not the same. 
most of the people who come only stop for one and a half hour. Sometimes they don't even meet a person. They just walk and they are, you know, almost running to get it over. You know, like, been there, done that. That's what we don't like. We want, like, people to come and see what we have to offer. And that's why we have started to have uh, uh, more opportunities in uh, entertainment here. Last summer we started to uh, go and snorkel with the puffin and dive with the puffin and the seabirds over the Arctic Circle. And we would like more people to come and, and stay and enjoy and see what we are doing. Whether the money generated from puffin-related tourism ventures will reverse the population decline is uncertain. Perhaps the biggest dilemma for Iceland and New Zealand as they continue to aggressively market themselves as tourist meccas is that of protecting their delicate ecosystems while at the same time putting them at risk by encouraging millions of people to visit them. Stephen England Hall from Tourism New Zealand acknowledges much more needs to be done on this here. There are other countries in the world that are doing uh, things about this problem in a similar way to what New Zealand is doing, perhaps, perhaps even more sophisticated. So a classic example is, is if we had boardwalks in our national parks as opposed to dirt tracks in some areas, we wouldn't have things like the spread of dieback. Uh, we wouldn't have things like impact on vegetation and so forth because you wouldn't actually be walking on it. Uh, you'd actually be walking on a structure. Now, the challenge, of course, with that is that putting a structure into a national park uh, has both benefits and challenges because, of course, it's not the natural environment. You've suddenly changed it. And so there's all these balances. And I think in parts of New Zealand we've done a really good job of that around protecting a view or protecting a, a natural asset without necessarily compromising the visitor experience. And there are other areas where I think we probably haven't gone far enough. Uh, and I guess what we see or what Tourism New Zealand's trying to do is provide visitor insight and certain guidance back to industry and government and organisations on how they can try and uh, improve the visitor experience whilst protecting the environment at the same time. Simon Milne from AUT agrees, saying that Iceland, for example, isn't nearly as accommodating to freedom campers as New Zealand is. It's very careful with trying to restrict visitors to uh, certain areas. It's very keen to make visitors aware, again through videos and social media, about how to behave appropriately in the natural environment. I've seen uh, videos from Iceland tourism that, you know, talk about, you know, that moss looks nice and springy and would be lovely to walk over, but don't forget that when you walk on it, you're destroying something that's taken thousands of years to grow to that, that very low point uh, on the landscape. So I think, again, if there was something we could learn from Iceland, it would be around not opening things up too quickly, being aware of the consequences of opening things up without giving visitors and also host communities sufficient information and making sure that there are opportunities to to manage tourism flows in the environment effectively. Aki from North Sailing in Husavik believes Iceland must do more to reduce the risk to wildlife and its fragile landscapes, primarily volcanic and glacial, rather than bush as it is here. But like all the tourism operators I spoke to in Iceland, he is optimistic about the future and is confident that his country can rise to the many challenges of being a must-see tourist destination. Companies and travellers and the government, of course, and everyone need to just pay attention to uh, preserving the nature and the nature of the, of the operations. So in Skjaland Bay, for example, we are trying to do 
what we can to make sure. I mean, we we'll, we uh, make a living of uh, showing the whales, and uh, and we want them to stay around, of course. So that's why we are uh, uh, cooperating uh, with um, researchers. We are cooperating with. Uh, the, the local um, government, uh, looking at how the conditions are in Skjallandi Bay, what we can do to uh, maintain them and make them better. Icelandic tourist officials have come to New Zealand recently looking for ideas on how to maximise its tourism potential while avoiding the pitfalls that come with that. But it appears New Zealand can learn just as much from Iceland as they can from us. We are far enough apart not to be serious rivals, while sharing unique environments that must be preserved. That programme was written and presented by Lynn Freeman, with extra material provided by Sean D. Wilson. Next week, RNZ's education correspondent John Gerritsen investigates growing fears about how good the service provided by early childhood centres really is. If you'd like to get in touch with the Insight team, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at InsightRNZ. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. Look forward to having you with us again next week. Listener.